This week on Geek Explained, to celebrate the release of Spider-Man No Way Home, we're taking a look at some comics you should read before and after watching the film. It's time for another Comics Catch-Up. Welcome back to Geek Explained. I'm your host, Eric Azana, and today's episode is in celebration of the latest Spider-Man flick hit in theaters this week, as of this recording, Spider-Man No Way Home. The, I guess, the final chapter... Maybe, we don't know, of the Tom Holland Spider-Man saga is going to be hitting theaters this week. And to kick things off, and to, I guess really celebrate Spider-Man and all of his adventures both on the page as well as on the screen, we're doing another comics catch-up. That's the segment where we take a popular film, a popular TV show that's coming out based on a comics property, and we tell you about some comics that you should read if you're interested in that story. So I've got some comics that I think you should be picking up and checking out if you're interested in the film. We also have the latest weekly review on the newest episode of Hawkeye, as well as, of course, this week's Comics Countdown. But before we get into all of that, let's check in with this week's news. All right, guys and dolls, let's talk some news. We have our four categories, film, TV, comics, and miscellaneous. Going to kick things off with miscellaneous news because uh, the Game Awards happened this past week as of this recording, and we've got some stuff I want to talk about. So first off... Uh, we got some announcements for a couple big games that are in the works. First off, Wonder Woman. Wonder Woman is finally getting her own game, though I still think Assassin's Creed Odyssey was a Wonder Woman game, if you played it correctly. Uh, this is really exciting. We basically just got kind of a teaser with some voiceover from, I'm assuming, Queen Apolita. Um we don't know exactly what the game's about, but it is being developed by Monolith Studios, the game studio behind the Shadow of Mordor games, which means that we might be getting some crossover when it comes to the mechanics of those games. Specifically, I think the press release noted that the Nemesis system will be making a return for both allies and enemies, which I'm really excited about. Uh, Wonder Woman has just such a great... Um, it's such a great IP for video games. Like, you can go God of War with it. You can go action-adventure. You can go puzzles. Um, there's a lot that you can do with Wonder Woman. And, you know, diving into the Greek pantheon and all that stuff. There's a lot that you can mine there. Uh, the trailer did talk about, you know, uniting old enemies as well as allies. So, I'm sure there's going to be some of that... Uh, some of that baked into the game. I'm hoping that Monolith doesn't go the way that Shadow of War did with microtransactions and shit like that. Um, 
Shadow of Mordor is still one of my favorite gaming experiences I've ever had. So I am hopeful that this game is going to be incredible, and I can't wait to see what they do with it. We also got the announcement of Star Wars Eclipse, a High Republic-era game being developed by Quantic Dream, the studio behind Detroit Become Human and Heavy Rain. I am very curious to see what they do with this game, because Quantic Dream is not known for their big, you know, action-adventure games. They're known for narrative games you know Detroit Become Human was an incredibly uh, potent gaming experience for me when I first played it and Heavy Rain is essentially just a narrative murder mystery and I am I don't know I don't know exactly what this game is gonna be but I can't wait to find out I trust in Quantic Dream Uh, they've put out some incredible games and I'm super stoked to see what they do with it Uh, we also got a just a quick thing because you know I've been gushing about it Guardians of the Galaxy the Guardians of the Galaxy game that I have been absolutely obsessed with since it came out won best narrative at the game awards so Really exciting stuff. Congrats to the whole team over there who put in all the hard work to make sure that this game was as good as it could be. We also got the announcement of Sonic Frontiers, which is looking like essentially maybe Breath of the Wild for Sonic. The comparisons are definitely there. Big, vast, open world frontier area just with Sonic. So... That's, we got, again, like the previous games, like a little teaser. The Star Wars Eclipse teaser, by the way, was gorgeous looking. Um, But the Sonic Frontiers teaser looks interesting. I don't know exactly what it's going to be, but we will have to see. We also got the announcement for Star Trek Resurgence. Star Trek Resurgence is going to be a narrative adventure by many of the same developers from Telltale. Um, This is cool. I think Star Trek really leans itself or lends itself to narrative storytelling like this. Uh, it's perfect. I'm surprised they had never made a Telltale Star Trek game, but I guess better late than never, right? It's going to be... It looks pretty cool. It looks pretty cool. I'm interested to see what they do with it. Um, and it's... Like I said, it's right in the wheelhouse with Star Trek, so I think this is a match made in heaven. We got some gameplay for Suicide Squad Kill the Justice League. Uh, it looks fun. They did the right thing by putting Captain Boomerang front and center in that trailer. Uh, Gameplay looks fun. The four main characters, Harley Quinn, Captain Boomerang, Deadshot, and King Shark, all look like they have varied and different gameplay styles, which is cool. Uh, There's multiplayer. There's uh, an open-world metropolis to run through. Uh, You're going to go up against the Justice League members. It looks interesting. I'm surprised that... We still don't have, like, an official release date because we got gameplay, we've got, you know, voice acting, we've got cutscenes, so we'll see. I'm sure it's still this year, but um, time will tell. And then finally, we got a pretty incredible tech demo, uh, The Matrix, which is on everybody's lips right now because... The next Matrix movie is going to be coming out, I think, next week as of this recording, so... We got a tech demo for the Unreal 5 engine, I believe. Unreal 5 on the PlayStation 5, uh, Xbox Series, and uh, PC, I'm assuming. And it looked incredible. A lot of people are now hankering for a new Matrix game, which I would be down for. Uh, But this tech demo was incredible. Just showing off the... um, 
the graphical uh, leaps and bounds they've made, just all the tech that goes into it. It's very, very cool. And Unreal Engine is going to be something that is going to be powering a lot of games going forward. So that's it for the Game Awards news. But also featuring the Game Awards news, uh, speaking of Sonic, we're going to hop over to film news because we got the first trailer for Sonic Two, uh, Sonic the Hedgehog Two is coming real soon. Uh, we already talked about the news that Colleen O'Shaughnessy is going to be coming back as Tails, and this trailer, I'm going to tell you, slaps. Uh, <laughs> I still haven't seen that first movie, though. I feel like we're kind of overdue now to see it, so I'm probably going to watch it with my partner pretty soon here. Um, but the trailer looks great. Jim Carrey's back as Doctor Robotnik. Tails is showing up, and we got the debut of. Knuckles, played by Idris Elba. Hype. Super freaking hype. Really, really cool. I had a ton of fun with this, and I can't wait to see this movie. But again, got to watch that first one first. Uh, Next up, we also got two uh, MCU pieces of news. First off, Modok. Modok is officially confirmed for Ant-Man 3. He's going to be one of the secondary antagonists alongside Kang. Um... I don't know. I'm very excited. I don't know what direction they're going to go with MODOK, but I think Marvel needs to do the right thing and pay Nando V movies for uh, for the idea. But we'll see what happens. Um, I love MODOK. I think the, uh, the stop motion... Uh, animated series on Hulu was kind of hit or miss for me. I didn't really enjoy it as much, but I wouldn't mind seeing Patton Oswalt come back for that, even though now he is portraying Pip the Troll as well. We'll see. We'll see who they cast. And then we got a poster leak for Thor Love and Thunder. The fourth Thor film, the fourth Thor film, uh, is quickly approaching it's coming up next year so i am really excited about this poster right because we see thor he's got the long hair again he's back in action we see valkyrie we see korg we see tooth nasher and the other one that i want to say is tooth nar but i know that's incorrect um I love seeing those goats. Really excited that they're bringing them back. But the biggest piece of uh, newsworthy uh, item in this was the uh, first big reveal for Jane Foster's Thor. That looks ripped straight from the comic book page. It looks fantastic. I'm really excited to see Natalie Portman in this role. Cannot wait to get more info on this, whether it be uh, posters hopefully a trailer soon we'll have to see gonna hop over to tv news and start things off with some sad news cowboy bebop cowboy bebop on netflix uh recently released its first season and it looks like it's gonna be its last season as well netflix has canceled the series after one season uh which sucks because you know a lot of people put their time into this uh the cast was great but i'm gonna be honest with you i didn't love it i didn't love it i love that first series um but this really, you know, there there was a lot of problems with this. And unfortunately, they're not going to get the opportunity to correct or fix those problems this season two because it's over. Uh, I feel for all of the cast and crew that put time into this. But honestly, it's, it's one of those situations where it's a fun watch, but the original anime is just so superior that it doesn't really make sense so unfortunate but i kind of get where they're coming from uh also at the game awards they announced that or they showed off a new trailer for the halo tv series which looks great i believe that's coming to paramount paramount plus uh but 
looks good. Classic Halo stuff. Uh, <laughs> there's not much more to say about that. Uh, we also got the news that the CW is developing a Gotham Knights TV series. Now, before you get really excited that it's going to be an adaptation of the Fall of the Batman storyline from Detective Comics Rebirth, it is not. Nor is it going to be connected to the Gotham Knights video game that will be coming out hopefully next year. Uh, looking at the press release here, uh, this comes from Variety. Uh, the series will follow Batman's quote-unquote rebellious adopted son who forges an unlikely alliance with the children of Batman's enemies when they are all framed for killing the Caped Crusader. And as the seri- city's most wanted criminals, this renegade band of misfits must fight to clear their names. But in a Gotham with no Dark Knight to protect it, the city descends into the most dangerous it's ever been. However, hope comes from the most unexpected of places, as this team of mismatched fugitives will become the next generation of saviors known as the gotham knights so it's runaways it's gotham runaways um i don't know exactly what they're planning on doing with this whether it's going to be uh jason todd because you know you you hear rebellious adopted son jason todd immediately springs to mind but i don't know man i don't know why they just didn't go with a we are robin series makes more sense to me than this but uh it looks like it is uh it's gonna be on the cw it's not a spinoff to batwoman which is interesting um and it's got uh natalie abrams james stodorah and chad fiviash i know none of those names but they're gonna be writing um it looks like uh abrams is gonna be co-executive producing uh Greg Berlanti is going to executive produce, looking over everything. So we'll see. I don't have high hopes for this. Um, But we, you know, we won't know until we watch it or see a trailer, I suppose. But we are going to round things off with comic book news because we got a ton of comic book news this past week. So first off, over on the Marvel side of things, we got the announcement of a couple creative teams for the Destiny of X, which is fast approaching as we wrap up Inferno pretty soon here. Immortal X-Men, that was one of the names that uh, stuck out to me when they announced the full line in the Destiny of X era. Immortal X-Men, as we now know, is going to be helmed by Kieran Gillen and Lucas Wernick and is going to be a uh, series specifically focused on the Quiet Council, which is really cool. Um, I've wanted more Quiet Council-centric stories, and it looks like this is going to be where we get it. Uh, Marauders is also getting a brand new creative team, as well as a brand new lineup, including characters like Dokken, Tempo, and others. Uh, It's going to be written by Steve Orlando with art by Eleonora Carlini. Um, Steve Orlando, great great writer. Um, I'm excited to see what they do with Marauders. I will miss the Jerry Duggan era because I have loved it so much, but uh, we'll just have to see. I still have high hopes. The Marauders book has been consistently one of the best, so I uh, can't wait to pick this up. We also got the announcement that a Captain Carter five-issue series is coming to us in March of 2022. Uh, Jamie McKelvey is going to be writing with Marika Cresta on art, and I like both of those creators, so I'm very excited about this. Uh, looks like Captain Carter isn't specifically going to be at, you know adapting the character from the What If show. It's basically just Marvel Comics spin on the character with a brand new uh, costume, a brand new uh, backstory, all that stuff. So we'll see. Um, 
I like Captain Carter, so I dig it. I'll be looking forward to it. Uh, Alex Ross also announced that he is doing his very first solo book, both on art and writing with Fantastic Four Full Circle, which will find uh, the Fantastic Four stranded in the negative zone. Looking very interesting to me. But uh, over on the DC side of things, we got uh, two pieces of Batman-centric news. First off, Shadow War is going to be a crossover kicking off in March 2022. Uh, stretching across the Batman book, Robin book, and Deathstroke Incorporated book, which will see Batman, Robin, Deathstroke, and Talia al Ghul go to war with each other. Uh, Joshua Williamson is going to be helming the book with a... Murderer's Row of of artists assisting him. Very excited to see this. And then we also got some freaking huge news. Uh, We talked before about the backups to Detective Comics that are going to be the world's finest book or backups that are coming in, uh, I believe, January, written by Mark Wade, one of my favorite, if not my favorite writers, and art by Dan Mora. It looks like we're not going to be getting the last of them in those backups because those backups are now just a prelude to an official Batman Superman World's Finest book written by Mark Wade, art by Dan Mora, coming to us in 2022, probably in March. Um, this is exciting news. I'm very, very excited about this. It's been a while since Mark Wade has written for DC Comics with all the uh, political drama behind the scenes, clashes with Dan Didio and uh, Bob Harris. So I'm excited. This is going to be a a really good book, so keep this marked on your calendars. And then, literally just as I was getting ready to record here, um, we got the announcement that Marvel has officially announced Doctor Strange's successor. And it's not who you think it is. Because I always kind of assumed that Magic was being primed for the role, or alternatively, Zelma Stanton, since she has been just kind of like wallowing in obscurity for a while, though she does make sporadic appearances on Strange Advent- or uh, Strange Academy. But no, it is going to be Clea. Clea is going to be the next Sorcerer Supreme and will be taking up the role in Strange, a book written by Jed McKay with art by Marcelo Ferreira. Uh, It's, I mean, Clea's an obvious choice. Clea makes sense. I haven't seen Clea in a really long time. She made her return in the Death of Doctor Strange book, and it looks like this is going to be spinning directly out of that. But alongside her taking the mantle of... Uh, the Sorcerer Supreme, she's also going to be looking for a way to bring Stephen Strange back to life. So, we will have to see exactly what this entails, but I'm excited. is a great character. Cannot wait to see what Doctor Strange's next chapter looks like. But speaking of Steve Ditko creations, that is going to roll us right on into the main event, the main course, the entree, if you will, which is my comics catch-up for Spider-Man No Way Home.
Spider-Man does whatever a spider can. And in the pages of Marvel Comics, Spidey's done a lot. There are over 50 years of Spider-Man stories, and now that many of them are being adapted to the silver screen, it's giving the opportunity for geeks like you and me to go back into the comics that inspired these cinematic stories to see what's different, what's the same, and what can be learned from experiencing a story in two different mediums. This is, of course, the latest comics catch-up, where I take a film, TV show, possibly even a video game, based on comic books and give you five comics that you should check out that may have inspired those adaptations. And this time around, we are looking at Spider-Man No Way Home, which, as of this recording, releases this week. We have waited all year, and now, this week's Spider-Man No Way Home will be dropping into theaters all around the world. Uh, I have all of the spoiler tags uh, muted on Twitter because I know, I know there's going to be somebody out there who has who has made it their mission to spoil this movie for people. You know, as I'm recording this, you know, the review embargo is up, people are going to early screenings, and there are, unfortunately, people who just like to ruin it for everybody else. So I am going to be uh, avoiding it at all costs, and my mission for you, my request for you, my incredible intrepid listener is do not spoil this film i know you want to talk about it i want to talk about it too i've got an entire series uh entire extra series with my co-hosts uh chris carter and aj kincaid where we're going through all the spider-man movies we're going to be doing an episode on this that will be chock full of spoilers but make sure that you don't spoil it for people who can't see the film. Um, there are going to be people who can't go to early screenings. There are going to be people who can't see it opening day, opening night, whatever. So just be mindful of them. I know I'm the guy who's always like, ah, I'm really sensitive to spoilers, but like, it's, it's just being a good person. You know, a lot of people have been waiting for this film for a long time, and I wouldn't want them to have any enjoyment taken from them because something that's really cool that happens in the movie is spoiled for them on Twitter or on Instagram or wherever. So just be mindful of that for me as a request, please. And let's go ahead and talk about these comics. But before we get into them, let's do a quick honorable mention. I've got one honorable mention that didn't quite make the top five, and I just want to talk about it real quick because it is the comic that I think most people are going to have um, in mind when they think of comics that are affecting No Way Home, and that's One More Day, a 2007 story that ran through Amazing Spider-Man number 544 and 545, Friendly Neighborhood Spider-Man number 24, and Sensational Spider-Man number 41. It was written by J. Michael Straczynski with art by Joe Quesada, and this story is... A, it, it's one of the most famous Spider-Man stories, and it's iconic for all the wrong reasons, right? So, basic premise of the story, Spider-Man, post-Civil War, his Aunt May gets shot because his identity is out to the world. Uh, they are running out of options, him and Mary Jane are, and so they are met by Mephisto, the Marvel Universe equivalent of the devil, who gives them a deal to save Aunt May's life as long as he can dissolve their marriage. Basically, if 
Aunt May lives, the relationship between Spider-Man and Mary Jane has to die. And a lot of people are looking at this story and saying, this is inspiring the story from No Way Home. And I could absolutely, I could absolutely see where you'd get that from. Uh, on paper, very similar premises, but I have to draw the line here because I don't think it's going to have as much of an impact on the story as people are thinking it will. I will happily say that I'm wrong if this is not the case, if it becomes basically one more day and someone dies and all that stuff, but as it stands, I do not think that it is going to have as big an impact on the story as people are saying, and that's because of two reasons. First off, the spell, right? In the One More Day comic, the spell wipes everyone's memory of the of Spider-Man's identity, thanks to a last-minute intervention by Mary Jane, as well as dissolving their marriage to save Aunt May's life. As, as far as we know, the spell does not go through, as we've seen in the trailer. It, again, if I'm wrong, I will come on this podcast next week and I will tell you I was wrong. However, um, I do think that... You know, while the premise is similar and while the start of the story may be similar, I don't think it's going to be anywhere near the same because the spell doesn't go through and that's what leads to all the multiverse shenanigans. And secondly, Mephisto. Mephisto is not going to be in this movie. I'm just going to tell you that right now. Mephisto will not be in this movie. I haven't even seen the movie as I'm recording this, but I can tell you wholeheartedly Mephisto was not in this movie. That being said, Mephisto at this point has become kind of this like this meme at this point he's more meme than actual comic book character now uh which i blame twitter and everybody for getting their hopes up from mephisto in every single disney plus show at this point watch he pops up in hawkeye uh but it's you know a lot of people don't seem to understand that you know this story isn't as big for Mephisto as the rest of his appearances in the comic books. You know, it's that classic, like, um, uh, that M. Bison quote where it's like, for you, it was the worst day of your life. For me, it was just another Tuesday. Or it's like, Mephisto was consistently ruining people's lives constantly. So, um, I just, I don't think, he's not going to pop up in this. He, it's an iconic story. It's a bad story. Uh, though it does have its merits, for sure. And I just don't really think that it's going to have as much of an impact on the film as people are thinking it will. But... That brings us to these five books that I want to talk to you about real quick, and we're going to kick things off with Back in Black, also from 2007, ran through Amazing Spider-Man number 539 through 543, written by J. Michael Straczynski with art by Ron Garney, and this story is all about consequences. This story, I think, is going to have one of the biggest influences on the narrative of the film because this directly spins out of the events of civil war uh for those of you who aren't aware or who aren't as familiar with the comic book civil war during that event you know we have that dust up between captain america and iron man they clash spidey is initially on iron man's side unmasks himself in front of the entire world holds a press conference you know reveals his identity as peter parker and from there his life goes to crap uh he is he basically makes the jump from iron man's side to cap's side after seeing all the terrible lengths that tony is willing to go to and following the events of 
Civil War, since Spider-Man joined up with Cap, he is on the run. He's, you know, tangentially part of the Secret Avengers, but him, Mary Jane, and Aunt May are all on the run. They are, you know, motel hopping, trying to keep their identities secret, uh, just on the lam and trying to survive. And early on in the... Uh, Early on in the story, Aunt May does get shot by a sniper, and from here, we really dive into what the consequences are for Spider-Man revealing his identity, which is what one of the main themes, I think, is going to be in No Way Home. You know, we see different stuff from the trailer about Spider-Man, you know, having his identity outed, him not really... Um, being able to live his life normally with his identity out there and for the world to see. So I think it's going to have a lot to do with the early stuff that goes on with this film. Also, they said in an interview that he is going to, that people are going to be surprised by seeing, you know, the dark side of Tom Holland's Spider-Man, which I, for one, am very interested in, because all we've really seen of Tom Holland's Spider-Man is a lot of, you know, quips and jokes, and many of them aren't funny. Uh, I'm sorry, I'm, I'm coming off of watching Far From Home, and I just, oh, uh, do not like that film. But uh, in this story, we do get to see Spidey's dark side because, you know, he's wearing the black suit. He's not wearing like the symbiote suit, but he's wearing a black cloth suit that looks similar to the symbiote suit. So he's already, you know, desperate. He's already on the run. He's already in a really dark headspace. And when Aunt May gets shot, he goes on a one-man war against the entire sniper population of New York City, basically going from place to place and just going after these guys one by one. So all of it culminates with a clash with Wilson Fisk, which, as I'm sure you know, uh, is heavily rumored to be appearing in Hawkeye and how that might balance out with the appearance of Charlie Cox's Daredevil perhaps making his return in Spider-Man No Way Home. Who knows? I am very excited to see how this story influences that. Uh, of course, this story also leads directly into One More Day, sets the stakes for that. However, the reason I put this on the list and not, you know, the, uh, the One More Day stories because I think more... Um, more tangible influences are going to be seen from this story to that one. So look for some of those influences as the film goes on. Next up, we have the Marvel Knights run from 2004. This uh, took place in Marvel Knights Spider-Man issues 1 through 12, written by Mark Millar with art by Terry Dodson and Frank Cho. And this book is interesting, right? Because... Mark Miller or Mark Millar or whatever, however you want to say his name, um, is a polarizing figure in the comic book world. He's made some incredible stories, some stories that will, you know, stand the test of time, some stories that will be, you know, either already have been or will be uh, adapted into the, into film, TV, however, and... His his storylines tend to go a little bit too far. He tends to take a lot of artistic liberties with these characters, and he does so in Marvel Knights as well. However, the Marvel Knights treatment given to Spider-Man, I think, is an interesting, uh, interesting example of a character and an and a creator who shouldn't work actually really working. Uh, Mark Miller, of course, was also the architect behind Civil War, so he's got, you know, 
little bits and pieces with Spider-Man here and there. And this, of course, took place before that. So he had kind of free reign to do what he wanted with this character without any of the post-Civil War stuff having to get in the way of that. And I think it's interesting because this story, I think, is fascinating, right? So this story is broken up into three separate arcs where steadily you see uh, Spider-Man... have the odds stacked against him there's a story in there the second arc is dealing with the much maligned angelo fortunato uh venom we get stories of the green goblin we get stories of as the story ramps up black cat gets involved and ultimately it becomes spidey versus the world because green goblin organizes the one-time-only Sinister Twelve. Twelve villains from throughout Spidey's rogues gallery of varying quality and fame are brought together to try and take the wall crawler down in the final act called Last Stand. And this is notable, I think, and I think uh, relevant to the film because we are going to see the odds stacked against Spidey with the amount of rogues that he is having to deal with. He has gone from one to two to now having to deal with an entire possibly Sinister Six, who knows, um, in this next film coming up. And it's notable because this is the only time that Green Goblin is actually on the Sinister Six. I know that a lot of people think that he's been on the on the Sinister Six multiple times. However, that is untrue. The Hobgoblin has been on the Sinister Six multiple times. However, Norman Osborn's Green Goblin has only been on the Sinister Six this one time in the 616 universe. So, uh, I think it's a worthy inclusion here. This is also blockbuster storytelling, which is, of course, what the MCU is built around. This is what the MCU is all about. It's telling the biggest stories to get as many butts in the seats as possible, and that's exactly what the story is is it does have that marvel knights flavor where it's a little bit darker a little bit um more mature we'll say but the terry dodson and frank cho art is spectacular and it's really it helps to you know kind of balance out the dark and gritty writing of mark miller and really give it really still make it feel like an all-time classic story there's some great redesigns here too the green goblin redesign here is one of my favorites really one of my favorite goblin designs ever and having the story centered around spider-man becoming more and more desperate as the story goes along once again i think gives us exactly what we're going to be looking for in no way home so that is why it is the second book on the list next up in the number three spot we have ends of the earth from 2012 this ran through amazing spider-man number 682 through 687 was written by dan slott and stefano caselli and before you get the pitchforks out Yes, let's talk about Dan Slott for a second, because Dan Slott's Spider-Man is one of the longest-running and most... I already used the word polarizing, but I don't know if there's another word to use here. One of the most uh, polarizing runs on Spider-Man, one of the most polarizing characterizations of Spider-Man in his entire comic book history. Uh, Dan Slott was synonymous with Spider-Man for a very long time, starting in Brand New Day and going all the way up to the Red Goblin saga. And 
it just wrapped up a couple of years ago, and this was right smack dab in the middle of the dance slot run when people were starting to sour a bit on the dance slot uh, characterization of Spider-Man, his storytelling. I think Spider Island was around this time too. And I don't care how many people on Twitter come after me for not liking Spider Island. I don't like Spider Island. I'm sorry. Uh, but this story, however, is incredible. Uh, basic premise of this is that Doc Ock decides that after he gets a diagnosis that he has only a limited time to live, he is going to take the entire world with him, essentially. So he constructs his own Sinister Six to basically ruin the world through climate change. And so Spider-Man has to team up with the Avengers to combat this worldwide threat. And what's really cool is that this is treated very much as an endgame for Spider-Man, which is how I think No Way Home is being treated as well when it comes to Tom Holland's Spider-Man. Uh, having this worldwide threat, Doc Ock being a major figure in it, I think is already going to be, uh, you're going to see a lot of the parallels between this story and No Way Home, uh, with it also being a world-ending threat as well, an Avengers-level threat with the multiverse going on, um, the instability of the world, bringing in Doctor Strange, teaming up with him. Uh, this story has a lot of those threads in there as well. Uh, this also, as I said, you know, teaming up with the Avengers. The Avengers are sent across the world to deal with different members of the Sinister Six while they are trying to get pieces for Doc Ock's big old doomsday machine. Uh, we also get to see a brand new suit for Spider-Man and Iron or not really an iron spider, a spider armor of sorts, which again, we will be getting a couple brand new suits in No Way Home. So there's a lot of parallels that you can draw between Ends of the Earth and No Way Home. Are they the same story? Probably not. Uh, but having a Sinister Six story with Doc Ock at the center of it, I think is enough of a thread to pull to see that there will be a lot of similarities here. Doc Ock is probably, it's, you know, it changes from day to day, but it's a toss up between him and Craven the Hunter on who's my favorite Spider Man uh, rogue. And having him be at the forefront for not just No Way Home, but also this story is incredible. A lot of people can say what they want about Dan Slott's writing, but he always knew how to write Doc Ock. He always knew how to write Otto Octavius, and I will always be indebted to him for that. Plus, Stefano Caselli rules. Stefano Caselli's art is incredible. Um, I love seeing how much his stock has risen since this story came out, and rightfully so, because even here in 2012, almost 10 years ago, uh, this story was one of the benchmarks for Spider-Man storytelling when it comes to the visual medium. Uh, it's a fantastic story that I think every single person should be checking out, and it is... Again, a blockbuster-style story that's contained just in the Amazing Spider-Man book, which I don't think people get a whole lot of anymore. You know, having to grab 12 different titles alongside 40 different tie-ins. This one was self-contained, it was very tight, the pacing was fantastic, and it still held up as one of the best Spider-Man stories from the modern era. So that's why it's at the number three spot. At number four, we have Happy Birthday. This took place in Amazing Spider-Man 57 and 58, as well as 500, though if you want to... 
add in a little epilogue as well. You can include 501 and 502. This was written by J. Michael Straczynski with art by John Romita Jr. This is earlier on in the uh, JMS run, much earlier on. And this was the big 500. And even though it is, you know, this benchmark for the Amazing Spider-Man series, it's kind of an underrated classic. So... Basically, the premise behind the story is that Spider-Man teams up with Doctor Strange when the mindless run, mindless runs, mindless ones uh, run through New York City. They are absolutely decimating the city. It's Spidey's birthday. It's Peter Parker's birthday. He's dealing with everything that's going on in his regular life. He's a teacher at this point. He's married to Mary Jane, dealing with all the trials and tribulations of married life, working as a teacher, and... On top of all that, with his birthday coming up, he is beset upon by the Mindless Ones as they tear through the city. Spidey teams up with multiple other heroes in the Marvel Universe and ultimately has to work with Doctor Strange to save the world across time and across space. If that sounds familiar, it does very much feel like this story has been at least partially looked into when it comes to No Way Home, with Spider-Man and Doctor Strange working together against a much larger threat to save basically everything, basically existence. It's a great story, and I always love seeing Spider-Man and Doctor Strange teamed up together. The two Ditko creations are just match made in heaven and anytime that they get to team up whether it's for big stories like this or whether it's for little stories uh maybe half issue stories maybe one page stories where spider-man gets to talk to a spider i love that story um Anytime that they get to spend together, Peter Parker and Stephen Strange are magic, no pun intended. Uh, We also get to see in this story, again, as I mentioned, time and space being brought in. Spider-Man is thrown through a couple different timelines. I won't spoil them because they're fantastic and you absolutely need to read them. But it's really cool to see how that has influenced this story, uh, dealing with multiversal stuff, all of the... Villains coming back, uh, people who he's seen before or who hasn't seen before, trying to make sure that he is doing the best that he can to the best of his ability. And it's really, it's always a story about Spider-Man fighting from beneath, right? Spider-Man is an underdog uh, by his very nature and seeing him, you know, try to navigate this, try to navigate the multiple timelines he's working with, with the dimensional stuff also going on. uh, It's it's very much seeming like this was a huge influence on Spider-Man No Way Home. Uh, This story also works as a celebration of Spider-Man. Um, Spider-Man No Way Home is hopefully going to be the celebration of the character that we all want it to be Um, I will say after watching Far From Home recently I am worried about that now however I do truly believe that they are trying to make this as great a Spider-Man story as possible so I genuinely think that this this is going to be a Hopefully, fingers crossed, great story, just like Happy Birthday is. Happy Birthday is a celebration of Spider-Man, and more so, it's a celebration of Peter Parker, the character who is constantly trying to 
fight against fate, it seems, to save the day, even as he is pulled in several different directions. It's a wonderful story, an underrated gem that everyone should go back and read, and it also has one of the sweetest Uncle Ben moments in the entirety of Spidey's history. And it's a moment that I would love to see taken up in No Way Home. There's a moment here at the end where Spider-Man... Uh, I don't know if I want to spoil this, but, you know, I'm just going to spoil it. Um, Spider-Man wants to, uh, wants to speak to Uncle Ben and he, he gets this great surprise and there's a conversation that is had that I would love to see, uh, utilized or adapted into No Way Home. No Way, you know, the MCU Spider-Man has criminally excluded Uncle Ben throughout his tenure, and I would love to see that corrected. So that is why Happy Birthday is on this list, which brings us to the final spot, which is The Gauntlet. From 2009, running through Amazing Spider-Man number 612 through 633, the biggest uh, storyline on this list. It was written by the Spidey... uh, hive mind i guess at this point uh it was written by mark wade uh fred van lente uh joe kelly dan slot roger stern and zeb wells with art by chris bacalo lee weeks marcos martin michael gatos max fumara paul azaceta joe quinones michael lark and javier polito and I apologize for anyone's name I mispronounced, uh, but this is the premier Sinister Six story of the modern era. A lot of people are excited about the Sinister Six popping up in No Way Home, myself included, though currently we only have five here. We'll see if that sixth person pops up. I love this story because this is one of the... I think one of the finest examples of Spider-Man as an underdog in his entire run. Uh, This is essentially the greatest hits of Spider-Man. You know, there's an interesting uh, argument to be made for both this and I think, you know, the Marvel Knights run. where, Where I think the Marvel Knights run, while it's... You know, it's really bombastic, has a lot of great moments, doesn't have as great a uh, a staying power with people, and it's, I think, still a great entry point for uh, for people to read Spider-Man. The Marvel Knights run is very much, to me, what Batman Hush is to Batman, where it's this book where you can have a lot of fun, there's a lot of, like, iconic imagery, has all of the best characters in there, but it's not, you know, one of the best stories, and in that respect, the gauntlet could not be further from it, you know, where Marvel Knights might be the, um, the... Batman Hush for Spider-Man. This, I would say, is closer to like a a Batman R.I.P. kind of story where Batman is put through the absolute ringer and Spider-Man is as well. Uh, This has a wonderful lineup of characters, a wonderful lineup of villains for Spider-Man to go through. And it's more or less a story to wear Spider-Man down where the 
at, the story is kind of treated in episodic format. One writer and artist team taking an arc before handing it off to the next team for the next arc and so on and so forth. Some of them come back for multiple arcs. But this really feels like the season of a TV show. It feels like, you know, there's an episodic format, obviously, with the arcs, but there's also an overarching plot with this shadowy figure kind of pulling the strings. But this honestly has some of the most incredible stories for the Sinister Six characters. And I know a lot of people have put a lot of focus on the villains this time around. Rightfully so. We're getting back some of the greatest villains that Spider-Man has faced on the silver screen, as well as the Lizard. And I I joke, I joke. Um, But seriously, though, it's... Good to see that this story puts the focus on the villains. There are some amazing stories that I want to highlight here. Power to the People is an Electro story. It's the opening arc for this. And it's possibly my favorite Electro story. It's incredible. The character is treated really well, even though he is, of course, in conflict with Spider-Man. We also get Rage of the Rhino, which is another one of my favorite Rhino... or. Another one of my favorite, I guess, yeah, it might be my favorite Rhino story. Um, That coupled with the second arc, I think it's called Endangered Species, uh, that brings, that's kind of like a part two to this, is incredible. Um, And then we get the book, the arc that people probably know the gauntlet for the most, which is Shed. Shed puts the spotlight on the lizard, is one of the darkest Spider-Man stories featuring a... Kurt Connors and Lizard kind of at the height of their depravity and uh, desperation, and it is just an, a kick-ass story that absolutely deserves to be read that is tragic, dark, horrifying, and ultimately it's one of Spider-Man's most harrowing and most... Um, most trying stories. It really pushes Spider-Man into the, you know, into the corner on how he can react to certain events. I'm trying to be vague here uh, before he ultimately has to choose the heroic path. And what's great about the story is that it's not just a great story in itself, but it leads directly into another story called The Grim Hunt, which kind of pays off all of the seeds planted from throughout the gauntlet. That one is a Craven-centric story. And of course, you know how much I love me some Craven. And even though Aaron Taylor Johnson's Craven is still a long way out, I think the idea of the these villains being brought in to wear Spider-Man down is going to be part of the story. Going from place to place, trying to deal with these villains as they pop up and watching them get the better of Spider-Man over and over and over again. It's a wonderful story. One of the best of the post uh, One More Day run. And it's absolutely one of the books that I think was looked at and will influence how the narrative of No Way Home goes. But that does it for this week's comics catch-up. This is the uh, probably one of the most hyped comics catch-ups I've ever done. Uh, No Way Home is one of the biggest films of the year. And having stories like these that, you know, comic readers or even people new to comics can go to look at both before and after watching the film. 
It was really exciting because at the end of the day, I think as a comic book fan, the best part about comic book movies is that they get people to read comic books. And hopefully you've had a book on this list that piques your interest. You can check it out. You can let me know. And then we can all enjoy Spider-Man No Way Home, both in film and in comic book form, stretched across this five book list and also an honorable mention with one more day and with over 50 years of spider-man comics as well as the culmination of maybe every single spider-man film we've ever seen here on the horizon it is a wonderful time to be a spider-man fan this is too dangerous not this one. You have to say definitely like that. Holy shit. There are arrows more dangerous than that one? It is now time for the weekly review. This is the segment of our show where I review something weekly. And right now we're reviewing episode number four of Hawkeye, entitled Partners, am I right? Um, I just, I continue to love this show. It's genuinely one of my favorite shows that I've watched this year. Um, every single episode, I fall further in love with the characters, with the story, and it's just a ton of fun. Uh, Jeremy Renner and Haley Steinfeld have incredible chemistry. Um, I really dig the Kate and Clint dynamic in this story. It's a little different from the comics in that they were weirdly like older brother, older sister slash like strangely attracted to each other. I don't know. It was weird. But I like that it's almost a um, a the stepdad role that uh, Jack is trying to portray is kind of the role that Clint is taking in Kate's life. Um, just it's really fun. And I love that the two of them are able to pull each other up when they're at their lowest. Um, getting into the episode, we started off right where episode three left off with Clint being confronted by Jack. Uh, the awkward conversation between Kate, Eleanor, Jack and Clint um, is just fantastic. And the way that uh, Kate is so like into this partnership and Clint is trying to keep a distance, whether it's, you know, because of his own reasons or because he's trying to protect her. I think it's, it's just really, it works on a lot of different levels. Um, I also loved the Christmas sequence where the two of them are just in Clint's apartment or I guess Kate's aunt's apartment. It's at this point, it's just the apartment. Um, where they have that little Christmas movie marathon and they're just getting festive. I just, I, again, I love Christmas, so it's, I'm an easy mark for this stuff, but I really, I really enjoy it and I really enjoy the treatment of it in this. Um, this was a bit of a shorter episode, which I think is kind of necessary. You need an episode that's really just kind of a come down and then a ramp back up, which we got in the form of Yelena Belova. Florence Pugh has officially made her debut in the Hawkeye series. We knew she was going to pop up at some point, but I was surprised that uh, this was the chance that or this was the moment that they decided to enter her in um really cool moment got to see her uh tassel tuckle what is the word tussle got to see her tussle with uh clint and kate and pretty much just hold her own against two different hawkeyes before escaping um 
really just enjoyed the fight. I love how we don't know exactly what her goal is here, and I'm sure she's going to be a... Um, a mainstay for the last two episodes, which I'm very excited about. Um, and then we also got some uh, intrigue on who owns the watch. We've got a watch. We knew from the first uh, first episode that there was a watch recovered from the Avengers compound. Clint says that it's from an old friend of his working undercover. And if the watch is recovered, it could blow his cover. I am going to make a wild prediction and say that it's Jack. I know it doesn't make any sense, but with the comics, uh, the comic swordsman having such a you know strong tie to Clint's backstory, I could totally believe that Jack's been undercover infiltrating all this stuff. Um, it probably doesn't make any sense, and it's probably not going to be who it belongs to. But having him be undercover to um, essentially like uncover all the shady dealings that Eleanor might be you know, wrapped up in, who knows? Very excited about it. Looking forward to seeing what they do with this reveal of the character who owns the watch. Uh, no Kingpin reveal. No Kingpin reveal here. We got teases. I said in a, um, I've, I, I think I said on Twitter that it would make sense to have, if there is going to be a Kingpin reveal, have it on episode five. Because episode five, I mean, this week's episode, as you're listening to this, is out. Um, but have the episode five that deals with multiversal stuff and possibly the return of Charlie Cox's Daredevil and Spider-Man No Way Home, who knows, have him pop up here in episode five because that will play into the finale, which will also feed into all of the rumors and speculation about the Netflix characters coming into the MCU. Uh, it just makes sense to me, timing-wise. It not might make sense to anybody else, but it makes sense to me. Um we got a little bit more Maya, which is really cool. We got to see uh, Clint interact with Kazi. Um, I'm are is he gonna be the be the clown? Who knows? I don't. You know, he hasn't taken the steps. Maybe episode five will be the episode that turns him, but we will just have to see what happens there. And then we also got to see the little uh, more teases for that costume, more teases for the Hawkeye costume. I'm really hoping it. It's not shown in any of the um, promotional material. And of course they wouldn't because spoilers and whatnot. But I really want that stupid Hawkeye cowl. I really want him to wear it because the costume almost looks unfinished without it. Um, I don't know. I'm hoping. I'm hoping against hope. But uh, having grills and the LARPers be kind of this, this community that Clinton Cater now a part of adapts them being the tenants from the... Um, from the comic without, you know, getting into it, getting into them buying the apartment building and all that stuff. So I enjoy that. I think it's really cool. And fingers crossed for a full-on Hawkeye suit up. But that pretty much does it for this week's episode. Uh, I'm really, again, still loving this. If they stick the landing on these last two episodes, this is going to be my favorite Disney Plus show out of all of them so far so tune in next week next week's going to be um a little different because we are as i've said before taking um the week after the week of the 29th and the 5th of december and january respectively off so next week you're going to get a double dose just like the first episode that we did where we um 
or we reviewed both episodes one and two. Next week's episode, I'm going to be reviewing episodes five and six, the penultimate episode and the finale. So tune in for that. Very excited to talk about this show. Cannot wait to talk about the show. I'm so excited. But uh, for now, we're going to roll right on into this week's Comics Countdown. Welcome back to this week's Comics Countdown. This is the segment of our show where I talk about the comics that I think you should be picking up this week. Whether it's at your local comic book shop, a comicsology, or however you get your comics, these are the ones I think you should definitely take a look at. But before we get into this week's books, we got to take a look back at last week's books with the Geek Explain Pick of the Week of last week. And for me... Uh, it was really tough um, choosing between like three of the books, but ultimately I decided on Inferno number three. Written by Jonathan Hickman with art by Stefano Caselli, R.B. Silva, and Valerio Schitti. Um Inferno rules, man. They did the most Jonathan Hickman thing where you've got this really cool concept that you've never seen done before in a specific genre or with a specific uh, comic book group. And then they and then he just does it again, making that thing that was so phenomenal in the first place even cooler. They smashed together his House of X Powers of Ten stuff with Days of Future Past, and it is... Oh, man, it's so cool. It's so cool. And I'm really excited to see what Inferno number four brings. That is going to be the end of the of Jonathan Hickman's time with the X-Men. Um, I'm excited. I'm really genuinely excited. Uh, this is going to be a huge, uh, huge finale for the Hickman era. And I cannot wait to see what they do with that last chapter. But that's last week's books. Taking a look at this week's books, we've got eight books for you to check out in this pre-holiday season. Well, this pre-holiday week, I guess. Next next week's Christmas. Jeez. Uh, so let's kick things off with Wonder Girl number six. This is written and illustrated by Joelle Jones with art also done by Leila Del Duca. Uh, and Wonder Girl is picking back up again. I, I think I talked last time that an issue came out where I was like, I feel like it's been months since we've gotten a book like this. And literally for this is like a week or two. So I am excited about this. I like the direction that they're going the all of the different amazonian tribes around the world are on a collision course with each other so i can't wait to pick this up let's go ahead and dive into the synopsis here after encountering wonder girl and artemis yara believes now more than ever that she needs to find her lost sisters only they hold the answers to the trauma of her past and fear of the future is yara a hero or is she a weapon of the gods wielded to destroy all Amazons? All will be revealed as Yara meets Patira. Patira is, of course, the uh, other Amazon featured on the cover here. Um, this is going to be interesting. Can't wait to pick this up. Next up, we have Robin and Batman number two, written by Jeff Lemire with art by Dustin Yin. Um, I... Ah, man, I really dug that first issue, man. Um, I like this reimagining of essentially Robin Year One, bringing in Killer Croc, who is an undersung and underappreciated Batman rogue. Um, I'm really excited to see what... The, and the art's gorgeous, the writing's great. It's just a great all-around book. So let's go ahead and dive into the synopsis here. 
Dick Grayson is struggling in his training to be Robin, and the Batman decides the young man needs a break and takes him to meet the Justice League. In an awe-inspiring moment, he meets the world's greatest heroes and their sidekicks. Will these teen titans get along? That's awesome. Uh, I mean... If this is your first time listening to the podcast, I don't read these synopses until I'm recording here. And we're getting Justice League. We're getting Teen Titans. Oh, man. I'm really excited about this. Uh, This book rules. Next up, speaking of Teen Titans, we have Teen Titans Academy number nine, written by Tim Sheridan with art by Mike Norton. And this book, uh, this book has a hell of a cliffhanger to pay off from last issue. So let's just go ahead and dive into the synopsis here. Homecoming continues. Homecoming is a time for reunion and reflection, and the shocking news that Roy is alive has left the Titans and the Flash with plenty to reflect upon. As old wounds are ripped open, the Academy's very existence is called into question, leaving the futures of its vulnerable young students up in the air and exposing them to the fury of an old foe out for vengeance. So yeah, really cool stuff. Um, I guess I can talk about it since the uh, synopsis kind of spoiled it too. Uh, Roy is back. Roy showed up at the end of last issue just at the same time as Wally is bringing his kids to possibly enroll at the Academy. Uh, This is hell of a timing for all this to happen. So looking forward to this for sure. Next up, we have Batman Urban Legends number 10. This is written by Teeny Howard, Dan Waters, Sam Johns, and Megan Fitzmartin with art by Christian Juice, uh, Alberto Jimenez Albuquerque, Carl Mostert, and Nicola, oh no, uh, Semezgia, Mm, I'm sorry. I, I'm sorry. Um, but this is the, I mean, this is kind of the Christmas issue for Batman. Uh, four different stories all centered around the holiday season. Let's go ahead and dive into the synopsis here. Tim Drake goes to make peace with Batman before he leaves Gotham. Superstar writer Teenie Howard makes her DC debut on a Nightwing, Oracle, and Batgirl's holiday spectacular. Azrael faces down the new villain, the poor fellow, and Tweedledum has to make a grave decision. We're getting a Tweedledee Tweedledum story? Nice! Um... This book has been consistently really good, um, diving into stories that we don't normally get time to focus on in other Bat books, so great book, pick it up for sure. Next up, we have Strange Academy number 14. This is written by Scotty Young with art by Umberto Ramos, and this is consistently one of the best books Marvel is putting out. Um, this is just, it's a fantastic story from start to finish. Each issue continues to further that story, and this issue is looking kind of wild looking at this cover, so let's go ahead and dive into the synopsis. This is it. The issue that you'll be looking back on 5, 10, 15 years from now. See the future of Strange Academy and the Marvel Universe. You won't believe your eyes. That is a bold claim, sir. Uh, I am really interested in this. The cover 
is showing several of the uh, Strange Academy students, obviously aged up. So it looks like we are getting a future story. And I am curious to see how these characters have uh, gotten on and where the world is when we pick up with them. Strange Academy rules. So <laughs> next up, we have I Am Batman number four. Uh, this is written by John Ridley with art by Steven Segovia. And this book has been great. Uh, the last few issues have been tied up in Fear State stuff, so I'm interested to see uh, where the book goes next. But I trust in this character. I really like Jace Fox as Batman, and I am excited to see what they do here. Let's go ahead and dive into the synopsis here. Fear State Aftermath. Following the collapse of the Magistrate Program, Jace Fox is still doing damage control from the events of Fear State. There's a dangerous new player in Gotham. However, they've set their sights on bringing down the Dark Knight. So yeah, really cool stuff. Um, I've been consistently enjoying this book. Jace Fox rules. Next up, we have a brand new number one, and that's Batgirls number one. This is written by Becky Cloonan and Michael Conrad with art by Jorge Corona. And, I mean, it's long overdue. It's long overdue, folks. We've been waiting for a Batgirls book, uh, putting the spotlight on Steph and Cass, and now we finally have it. Cannot be happier about that. Let's go ahead and dive into the synopsis here. Um, hello? You didn't actually think we'd keep you waiting this entire year without giving you the Batgirl series we've all been wanting for forever, right? No way! We love you too much, just like Batgirls Cassandra Cain and Stephanie Brown, who are only able to navigate the dark, gritty, and oftentimes scary city of Gotham by leaning on the bright light that is their best friendship. Mentored by Oracle, the Batgirls move to the other side of town, where Barbara Gordon can keep a better eye on them while the hacker Seer is still invading their lives. Steph may be too rash sometimes, and Cass doesn't speak much, but what they lack in similarities they make up for with their mutual respect and love for for each other, and what makes them stronger together as Batgirls. And they may be good at kicking ass, but they are just trying to, their best to be normal teenagers, who will borrow the keys to a muscle car that belonged to a bad guy and perhaps give it a joyride around town without a driver's license. Then race to get back home to Oracle by curfew. Splashing the pages with bright colors against a dark backdrop of Gotham, Batgirls is the pizza slumber party of the year you won't want to miss. That is a big synopsis. <laughs> and I love that the first half of it was like, guys, see, we we do like these characters. Please believe us. So um, it was just funny to me, but really, really excited about this. I'm glad they're getting their own book. It is long overdue, and I cannot wait to pick it up. But the big book of the week, the book I think you should absolutely be picking up is, of course, serendipitously, The Amazing Spider-Man number 81. This is written by uh, Saladin Ahmed with art by Carlos Gomez, a brand new story arc for the Ben Riley Spider-Man era, and a little bit of a crossover as well. Can't wait to pick this up. Let's go ahead and dive into the synopsis here. Beyond, Chapter 7. It's new Spider-Man versus newest Spider-Man. The Beyond Corporation paid a lot of money for the Spider-Man trademark and does not take kindly to an unlicensed Spider-Man running around Brooklyn. So it's up to Ben Riley to take Miles Morales down. 
we're getting a Ben and Miles clash. I'm really excited about this. Um, I love these two characters dearly, and I'm very excited to see what happens when they meet up. And uh, Miles is going through a renaissance right now. Saladin Ahmed has been helming Miles' stories for a good long while, so I'm excited to see him bring that energy into this book. Cannot wait to pick this up for sure. Amazing Spider-Man is one of the best books Marvel's putting out right now. But that does it for this week's Comics Countdown. To recap, we have Wonder Girl number six, Robin and Batman number two, Teen Titans Academy number nine, Batman Urban Legends number 10, Strange Academy number 14, I Am Batman number four, Batgirls number one, and The Amazing Spider-Man number 81. And that is going to bring us to the wrap-up. If this is your first time joining us on the Explain podcast and you like what I do here, feel free to subscribe on the podcasting platform of your choice and give us a rating and review. We drop new episodes every single Wednesday, and honestly, ratings, reviews, and especially subscriptions really do help me out, really helps the podcast out in this weird podcasting algorithm space, and gets us out and into the orbit of listeners just like you. And if you give us a five-star rating and review on Apple Podcasts, iTunes, whatever you want to call it, I will read your review here live on the podcast. You can join the likes of our Dirty Dozen, including Seafire ND, Joshua Panels to Pixels, Matt Draper, Burrito Man 88, Doug from For Every Kind of Geek, Don Swanson, That Guy Brian, Mouth Dork, Dallas Meeks, Amazing Spider Fan, Alock and AZ, and Sass. I want to say a huge thank you to every single one of these fine folks for their reviews, and I cannot wait to hear yours. I also wanted to say that huge thank you to all of you who do give ratings and reviews we just got our 20th rating we are officially 20 ratings in and we are now officially a five star podcast on apple podcasts thank you thank you thank you to whoever you are that gave us that 20th five star rating I'm sure the review is incoming. Hopefully, if not, thank you so much for that. Uh, Christmas came early for the Geeksplain podcast. We are officially five-star rated. Thank you so much for doing that. If you want to be part of our Geeksplained mailbag, you can write into the show. Email me at geeksplained at gmail.com. Send your emails there. Put mailbag in the subject header, and I will read them here on the podcast. Like our very good friend, the real deal himself, Brian Real. Uh, he writes, Hi, Eric. Hello. I hope you're doing well and being merry this December. I feel like there's something releasing this week that's super important and that everyone is really excited for. Maybe even to the degree that one of my favorite podcasts has been analyzing all of this character's movie appearances this month to get ready for it. Hmm. You know, I can't think of what he's talking about. Anyway, he writes, Oh, well, let's just talk about Daredevil instead. I really enjoyed your and Matt Draper's discussion on Chip Zdarsky's Daredevil run leading into Devil's Reign. It made me wonder that given how great it's been, who would you even want to see take up the writing duties whenever Zdarsky's run comes to an end? Much like Immortal Hulk by Al Ewing ending with such a definitive run, it's hard for me to even think of who could follow Zdarsky's take on Daredevil. Would you prefer he takes a well-earned rest before another writer tries their hand or do you have a choice for if marvel says hell no on to the next run looking forward to hearing what you think anyways enjoy your week and whatever that movie is that's coming out this weekend be well and take care best brian brian always 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 good to hear from you brother um this was an interesting question and i i thought about it i put a lot of thought into it and obviously my first thought was tom taylor 
Uh, Tom Taylor is one of my favorite writers. I think he would do a bang-up job with the character, but he's already doing Nightwing, and he, I think, just signed an exclusivity deal with DC so that Marvel Dark Ages book is going to be the last Marvel work he does for a good long while. Um, if it were me, honestly, once the Zdarsky run is wrapped, I would put a pin on Daredevil for a little bit, allow that run to breathe. Um, Chip did say, I think, on Twitter that the run isn't ending. It's going to continue post-Devil's Reign, but we don't know what that's going to look like. Um, and in the way that comics are nowadays, I mean, you just mentioned, you know, they did the Immortal Hulk run that wrapped up and immediately dove into Hulk by Donny Cates. Uh, so time waits for no man or any comic. So if I had to choose, I've got three writers that I think would be really interesting to see write this book. Um, first off, I uh, already mentioned him, Al Ewing. Al Ewing is a phenomenal writer who I think can do pretty much anything he wants <laughs> at this point. He's got carte blanche to do all of the things that he has ever wanted to do with different characters um i really enjoy his writing i think he's a he, he's just very good right he's just very good at what he does um i really enjoy uh his work and i've never read a bad al ewing comic i'm currently catching up on the guardians of the galaxy run that he did and everyone was right it's incredible i just finished the first volume and i can't wait to get into the others um it's so good. It's very good, and I think he would bring a different perspective. Uh, also, second pick, I think maybe just because he's been on my mind lately, uh, Matt Fraction. Matt Fraction, I think, would do a bang-up Daredevil run. Um, I've been rereading his Hawkeye run because, duh, Hawkeye. And I just really like it, man. I really, really dig it. I think his work on the on Hawkeye really elevated that character and his his work on Jimmy Olsen, Superman's pal Jimmy Olsen, uh shout out to Doug and Jimmy coming up. Um is just out of the box enough to make me think, oh, he could do something really fun with Daredevil, kind of in the same vein of Mark Wade's run. Um I think it would it would just be a blast and it would be really interesting to see his perspective on Daredevil. But the final pick I think and I strongly believe you could put him on any book and he will shine. Jean Lun Yang. Jean Lun Yang is currently absolutely killing it on Shang-Chi. And having him be part of both that and Daredevil would be really fascinating. I'm super into basically anything he writes. And I would be really interested to see the perspective he would give to Matt Murdock's story. Um... Any one of those writers, I think, would be a great pick. I, of course, like I said, do think that they should take a break for a little bit. But if they had to jump in right away with a brand new creative team, put put them on. Put any of these guys on. Art, I don't, I'd have to think about it. Uh, I mean, you could very easily reunite Fraction and AHA for Daredevil, and I think that would be incredible. Um, also, bring back uh, Jorge Fornes. Let him do his thing. Uh, I'm. I don't know exactly where it's gonna go, but 
it's it's going to be interesting wherever we go next with it. But thank you, Brian, as always, for listening and for writing in. Again, if you want your email read on the podcast, just email me. Send your emails to geeksplained at gmail.com. Put mailbag in the subject header, and I will read it here. Finally, if you uh, want to keep up to date with the podcast, get notified when we drop new episodes, as well as participate in polls that decide future episodes, or maybe you just want to shoot the shit with me on the latest geeky news. You can follow us on Instagram and Twitter at Pod is the handle. That's at GeeksplainedPod. Been very active on Twitter lately with all the Spider-Man hype going on. Uh, and if you want to get my thoughts on stuff, that is the way to do it. I also love just connecting with you guys and gals. Like, it's just fun to be able to listen to... Uh, to have you guys listen to the podcast, us chat about the stuff that, you know, you've, uh, you take away from it. It's just a good time all around. I'm always looking, I'm always excited to build new relationships with, with, uh, you all. So feel free to connect with me on there. And then, you know, last bit of plugging here. We are currently, as Brian referenced, uh, doing a extra series that we're calling Spidey Sember. We are in the home stretch here. So, uh, Spider Man No Way Home drops this Friday slash Thursday. Um, I'm going to go see it uh, Thursday night, so I'm very excited. Uh, but we are in the home stretch for Spidey Sember as we're recording, or as you're listening to this. This past Monday, we did Spider Man Into the Spider Verse. Um, What's up, danger? That's all I'm going to say. Uh, we also have, as you were listening to this later on today, you're going to be getting our review of Spider-Man Homecoming. And then this Friday, we'll be dropping our review of Spider-Man Far From Home. So keep an eye out for that. Just check the feed. We've got every single other Spider-Man film that came out before this on there up already. They have been some of our most listened to episodes, so keep doing that. I really appreciate you all listening and I cannot wait to share the rest of Spidey-cember with you. But that is going to do it for this week's episode. We are nearing the final stretch here. Next week will be the final episode for 2021 before I go on hiatus for a couple weeks. And I mean... It's crazy, right? 2021's almost over. I am kind of excited for 2021 to be over. On to 2022. Uh, Next week is going to be our big year-end wrap-up, talking about my favorite films, TV shows, comics, and video games. So tune in for that next week. Same geek time, same geek channel. But for now, for Geeksplain, this is Eric Azana. Thank you very much for listening. Stay safe, and we will... See you next time.